Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be with you once again. If you're in a relationship where trust has been broken, where there's been some kind of a betrayal, whether you're the person who committed the betrayal or the person who's been betrayed, I have a series of videos I'd love to send you. They're called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. And I've got information in there and support for the person who's been betrayed as well as the person who broke the trust. I've also included some information for the couple relationship. This can be a very difficult time to navigate for people. So if you click on the link in the show notes, I'll send you the videos right away. We're excited to bring you today's guest. Her name is Heather Plett, and she is the author of the book, The Art of Holding Space, a practice of love, liberation, and leadership. And she's the co-founder for the International Center for Holding Space. She's an international speaker, facilitator, writer, and lifelong learner whose work has been translated into a dozen languages and quoted in such notable publications as Harvard Business Review. She's trained people from six continents, both in person and online. And before launching her work in holding space, Heather worked in leadership and communications in government and nonprofit. And she currently lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada with her three daughters. We're so grateful to have Heather on the podcast today. And we're excited to share this interview that we did with her to talk about this concept of holding space. This is such an important topic when it comes to rebuilding relationships, but also just to improving our relationships, whether it's with ourself, whether it's with other people, with our spiritual connection, our children, that space allows for so much to happen. And Heather's going to explain more about what this looks like and how we can use it to improve ourselves and especially our most important relationships. Okay, so let's dive right into our interview with Heather Plett. Well, Heather, welcome. Yes, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. We're going to talk about holding space. And this is not a term that I think a lot of people use, at least in no. my circles. When I first heard it from my friend and colleague, Galen Emerson, she talked about your work and used that phrase. And I thought, oh, that's lovely. I, I think I know exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. It just really resonated. So can you just Let's just jump in, Heather. I'd love for you to be able to talk about what does this mean to hold space for someone and tell me where this term came from for you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that invitation. So holding space, originally I heard the term used in facilitation circles. I'm trained as a, a facilitator in the art of hosting community and, and practice called the Circle Way. And in those communities, I started to hear this concept of holding space, how we hold space for meaningful conversations to happen and transformation. And I knew of it as a head term at that time, like I kind of understood it intellectually at that time as a concept and, you know, work related kind of concept. And then when it really landed as a really personal concept was when my mom was dying. It's now hmm. nine years ago that my mom died. And as she was dying, my siblings and I were uh, for four really intense days were in her home with her. 
And during that time, we had a palliative care nurse who was coming to support us. And there was something, she just came every couple of days to offer us guidance and to do a few things in in care for mom and and to give us a little bit of indication of what was to come in terms of mom's dying. And it took me a while to name it as holding space, but I just, I kept trying to articulate what was that unique quality that this palliative care nurse was offering to both us and to mom in how she was supporting this transformation, this dying process from mom to transition from life into death. And it took me about two years before I finally, I wrote a blog post about how this was the quality of holding space, how she was showing up and was able to support us, give us uh, simple guidance, not overbearing us with guidance, but giving us just enough to help us in that process, how she was doing it in a way that was not bringing judgment or bringing her own ego into the process, but was really allowing it to be our process and our, you know, giving us our autonomy and what choices we made where mom was concerned, trusting us to know our mom and to know our relationship and not inserting herself in that. So all of these qualities that were present in this palliative care nurse who she was kind of the outer rim allowing holding space for the whole family so that us as siblings and as children of our mom could hold space for our mom. So it was kind of a multi-layered process. And that became mm. really the origin point of the work that I've done since the book I've written since and a lot of the teaching I've done evolved, emerged out of kind of that one moment when I really witnessed that quality. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how having an experience like that with somebody who had, who really understood how to give it and who had so much to offer there. I can see how it would take some time to even find words to describe what that was like so that you could even begin to understand it yourself and practice it. And because that's not something that, that just as a, a general culture in society, we don't, we don't practice a lot of that on a regular basis. Yes, exactly. I think there's something that's really kind of unique in this learning to know your own tendencies and recognizing your own desire to rush in with a solution, to give advice where advice is not being asked for, to try to fix things on other people's behalf. These are all parts of our very human nature to be helpers and to be supporters. And there is a quality in holding space that really is about hitting the pause button. It's about wrestling with your own ego separately so that you're not projecting things onto the other person. So there's a lot of it about learning yourself first so that you can support another person in what they need in that moment. And that was, like you say, like there is something sort of, I think we all intuitively know and have a sense of what holding space is. But we also have to learn this practice, this really personal practice of removing ourselves and kind of quieting our ego that wants to get involved in that moment. And what happened when I wrote that blog post, it went very viral. It's been seen by tens of millions of people by now. And I think one of the things that came back to me again and again and again is gratitude that I offered language for something that people were grasping to understand. Like they had a sense of it. They had mm -hmm. an intuitive sense of what was needed. But by writing about it, I was now offering the, the language that could really help them deepen their understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. And do you think, Heather, that for someone to really be able to hold space 
that they have to have an experience with it like you did with this nurse? I do think it's helpful to bear witness to it, to recognize it. That's what helps us understand it when we see it. But I think once we start to be able to articulate it, understand it, we can look back into our history and we can probably name a, you know, half a dozen people that have done this. Even when we were children, you may have had a school teacher who was really uniquely able to support you in your own growth and autonomy and didn't project their own stuff onto you, who held space for your beauty to shine, for your strength or wisdom to, you know, to really come to the forefront. We all have some little moments of holding space, somebody that was able to just show up in, you know, in an egoless way to support us and remove their own needs from the situation for a moment just to allow us to have our own autonomy and decision making at that moment. So, I, yeah, I think we, we don't always recognize it as holding space, but when you pause to reflect on it, once you have the language, you can usually look back and name a couple of people. And maybe it's it's not always people that have mm -hmm. a long-term relationship in our lives. Sometimes it's just a moment. Sometimes you just, even a coffee shop, like you can hold space for a stranger in a coffee shop. I had a mo moment once where I'd come home on the bus from a dentist appointment and I had been in so much pain. I'd had to have emergency dental surgery because I had an impacted tooth and I was in so much pain. I stepped off the bus and I was just weeping as I got off the bus because I've been trying to hold it together on the bus. This woman sees me coming off the bus and she just stops and she just witnesses my pain. And she says, I, can I just give you a hug or something? Like, I just want to be present in your pain with you. And I, I'll never forget that woman. What? Like I was in my wow. 20s. I'll, I'll never see her again. I, I wouldn't recognize her. And yet in that moment, she was what I needed. Somebody who could hold space for my pain. She didn't try to take it away or do anything about it, but she just witnessed it mm. and was the support on the street, this random moment on the street. So I don't, don't underestimate the little moments that we have access to this kind of quality and, and th that we can give it to other people, strangers on the street as well. So I love that you brought up that example and because you address this in your book, but I think it would be helpful if we spent some time talking about in the practice of holding space for other people, how it can be, it can become quickly complicated when we're doing it in close relationships as opposed to being able to offer it freely to somebody that we might see and share a few moments with and then be able to move on from that. Because I imagine as people are, are listening and really resonating with what you're saying, it's also at the same time bringing up some hesitation because it, it is not, it doesn't feel very simple when we want to do it with people we're really close to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And one of the things, this comes up every time I, I offer a lot of workshops and training on this concept. And this question always comes up, like, why is this so hard to do for my spouse, my children, my parents, my, you know, et cetera, that inner circle. And the, the fact is, those are the hardest people to hold space for. And the reason for that is that the more attached you are to the outcome, the more you want to have some control over the outcome. Because if your spouse yeah. comes to you one day, for example, and says, I have this really big decision to make. I want to quit my job. I'm really, you know, I'm fed up. I'm burnt out at, at work. 
Well, my first instinct is not necessarily, well, let me hold space for you as you make this decision. <laughs> my first response, my reactivity is we're suddenly going to be broke. We're going to be without money. How will we pay the bills? What's I'm now attached to the outcome of whatever decision you make. So mm -hmm. I can't offer that objective, you know, space holding. And so what I often tell people is, be honest about that. Like if I'm not the right person, like I support you in making this decision, but I know I'm going to be attached to the outcome. So I'm probably going to project my stuff onto you. And I, I don't really want to do that. So maybe you can talk to somebody who's a little bit more objective, somebody that's a little more removed from it. And that's why, I'm, for example, when I got divorced a number about seven years ago, and one of the things that I did for all three of my daughters is I said, I want to support you through this. This is going to be a really difficult time, but I know you need support that's going to be more objective than your mother can be. So I'm going to offer at some point, if you want to go see a therapist to work through this divorce, I'm going to pay for therapy oh. for you because I want you to have access to somebody who's more objective than me to hold space for what you're going through. So recognize your limitations in those those moments when you might not be the right person because you're just too close to the situation to really hold space. And and don't really beat oh. yourself up for not being able to do it because it's not yeah. like we can all just sit around and be monks and just be totally detached from these relationships. I mean, this, like you said, we are deeply invested in our marriages, our, our parenting, our, our families, and our, even our close friends. And so it's okay to have compassion. And like, I, it's really, this is so multi-layered, right? Like we're holding space for our own incapa incapability of holding space. It gets sort of meta. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, it does. And, and what you say, I'm, I'm going through this right now at the, as we speak, I'm in the process of selling my home. It's the home that I raised my children in. They're now all in their early twenties. So they're setting off on their own lives. But at the same time, I know they're grieving the loss of their childhood home. And so I recognize what they're going through. I recognize they're, you know, they're having to process this stuff. And I also know I'm probably not the right person because I'm the one who's kind of yanking this security blanket of their childhood home out from mm -hmm. underneath them. So I'm a bit responsible for what they're going through. Not that I'm blaming myself, but so, you know, I'm really supportive of my friends or my daughters going to speak to their friends about it. Like one of my daughters yesterday, she says, mom, can I have the backyard? I just, I want to spend time with my friend in the backyard in, the, you know, this place I grew up in. And so I left the house and I let them have the, a private moment in the backyard when they needed to just sort of process what, what was going on and that grief. And that's, that's again, it's another way we have to get our ego out of it when we are not the right person to hold space for another person. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong in my relationship with my daughter because I can't support that. It just means I'm noticing the places where I'm not the right person and by supporting her and, and not needing to insert myself in those places. I'm actually being a better support. And it's in a way I'm now like, I, I often talk about this kind of multi layers to the bowl. I talk about holding spaces, holding the container and there's an inner container and then there might be an outer container. And so when I know I can't be that inner container, I can move a little further back and become the outer container. So now Yesterday afternoon, I created the environment where my friend, my daughter could be held by an, a, her friend and I left the house and did okay. something else so that she had that inner container that I couldn't be for her at that time. Oh, that's really lovely. It is. And I think that's really important 
but like maybe the most important piece of this, because I can see how, how we do this in our close relationships. We put a ton of pressure on, and the closer the relationship, the more pressure there is on us being the one to handle this thing. But if, if we're not the best fit, it preserves the relationship to not put that kind of pressure on it. And it doesn't diminish us or the other person or the strength of our bond if we just recognize that somebody else might be better as the inner container and that we can give what we can and be supportive, but not necessarily have to be so close. I love that. Yeah, you're not a failure if you're not the inner container for every single person in your life and every yeah. relationship. I mean, and I, I do love that. Like you said, Jody, like having the ability to expand out and have permission to take multiple steps back and maybe sit on three layers out, right? Three bowls out, if you will, <laughs> still keeps you in attachment to that person in a really respectful, loving way. And you don't lose that connection. It's not like, well, all or nothing, like either right. you, I'm your main supporter. I guess you don't care about me, right? That's the, all the ego and the fear and all the stuff coming out. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, exactly. I think it really, when I, <laughs> I developed, I wrote the book now a few years ago. And I, I, even before that, I developed my first course on holding space, what we now call our holding space foundation program. And after I'd written all this material about holding space and, you know, holding space for other people and then holding space for yourself and, and how it, it, you know, it's a relational thing. And I started to realize this sort of growing awareness that everything I'm writing about is really about developing relationships of mutual sovereignty where each of us can be. And I, I talk about one of the concepts I talk about when I talk about holding space for yourself, because you can't be your own container. Like I say, if I'm container for somebody, it's like being a bowl, but I can't do that for myself. But what I can do is to develop what I call a psychic membrane. A membrane is it's a little different than a boundary, but if I'm holding space for myself, I'm recognizing that this is me, this is what I need. I'm being honest about my needs. And I use the the analogy of a membrane, which is like a our cell membranes that that allow things in that we need and push things out that we don't need. And when we are each in our own unique membrane, we are honoring the other person in their membrane, and we are now unique and sovereign individuals who can support each other, love each other, but recognize that I am never going to be a fully dependent or codependent. I'm going to you know, I'm going to recognize when it's time to pull away a little bit and let somebody else come in. And that's, that's the beautiful way to be in relationship. That's the way that really does hold space for another person's needs. Because if I can't fill their needs, I'm only halfway fulfilling their needs. I'm actually doing some harm to them. I'm doing some harm in not allowing them somebody else who would do a better job of holding space for them. So if I am genuinely holding their best interests at, at heart, then their best interests might be me sometimes pulling back a little bit further and giving them and allowing them somebody else to come in in that supportive way. Yeah, that really aligns with, I mean, so much of, I studied a lot with Sue Johnson and emotionally focused therapy and so much of her model, of course, is attachment based, but she also just reminds us all the time that independence and dependence are two sides of the same coin. And you absolutely have to make room for an individual as you're trying to build an attachment and connection. And if they do need a little bit of space or a lot of space to trust that, that the attachment can support that 
as an individual. And you're, you're really kind of moving between these two. And I love the membrane metaphor so that it's not this big wall. It's just, it allows there to be a definition, but still allow there to be movement, which is really gentle and respectful. Mm-hmm. And I love the, the imagery in your book. It's really, a, it's just a, essentially a picture of two cells mm-hmm. that wh- whose membranes are malleable. And as one cell moves toward the other, the other just creates an indent. It creates room for that cell to kind of press upon it. And they don't, they don't become one. They're separate, but the one can be supportive. And they're connected. Yeah. 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 And I think because, this is, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. <laughs> this is what I love when, when this, this imagery emerged for me. It, it emerged as part of a conversation with a friend. We were talking about boundaries and I've never, the board boundaries has always felt a little too rigid to me. It's like building a fence and I don't want a fence between me and somebody. I want something more organic between us. And that's where, and not that I don't, I do, I do teach about boundaries, but I, I wanted some other language that really recognized what is holding us in relationship. And when you start to st- study an actual cell membrane, there are actually sensors on that cell membrane that tell it which other cells it should bond with. So your muscle cells know to bond with other muscle cells. Your brain cells know to bond with other brain cells. And they push away those those cells that are not meant to be in relationship with mm. you. So there's good messaging. There's good information coming to us about where we're supposed, where we should be in relationship. And when we do connect in relationship and there is, you know, some alignment and some understanding and we create what, what I refer to as a social contract between us that allows us to know, okay, I'm going to respect this in you. This, these are boundaries you've asked for. I'm, you're going to respect this. I'm going to communicate my needs and you're going to communicate your needs. And we're going to try to hold those mutually. So that neither of us is overshadowing the other. And then there becomes this flexibility that when you need a container, you come home from work one day and you're just spent, you're exhausted from doing too much emotional labor with the people you work with. I can now create a container for you. But we have an agreement that when it's my moment, you're going to create the container for me. And there's this flexibility. And there's an image in my book where I have the two cells that become kind of a yin-yang symbol where you create a space and and then I create a space. And we go into this flux, you know, fluctuating kind of relationship where where it is a, a mutual honoring of each other's needs. And, and then there's, I, I take it one step beyond that because I don't ever want people to only look at that picture of one to one relationship, but I create a whole community of cells where, you know, on one hand, you're getting support from me, but in another area, you're getting support from another cell because I can't give you everything. So maybe you need some support from a therapist or a coach or your siblings or your parents or something. So we are mm-hmm. all in relationship and it's a co- collective kind of relationship instead of just a one-on-one. So so it was a, a big life shift for me to discover that I didn't always have to be the bull. And I imagine there are a fair number of our listeners who, who can resonate with that. Um, and admittedly, when I started reading, I, I mean, I love the concept of holding space and I do feel that it is deeply important and necessary in really good relationships. But 
the more I got into it, I started to feel a lot of resistance, in, internal resistance, like I can't always be the bull. <laughs> I can't because <laughs> I've tried that and nobody can always be the bull. It's, it will always result in a miserable failure. But you do a really great job of of addressing that. And in some of this imagery, that's portrayed really beautifully. So would you talk a little bit more about the sharing of making space and people just learning to not only to to provide the bull for somebody else, but also to live with an understanding and an expectation that they can lean on others to be the container for them as well. Yes, I think some of the most important writing that I did about holding space is about when to say no, <laughs> because this was something I realized early on. And so I, when I, my post went first went viral and I was getting thousands of emails in my inbox from all these people sharing stories about how they were holding space in prison systems and conflict zones and complicated families and schools and et cetera, et cetera. I realized like I suddenly had this burden on my shoulders, like all of these people are kind of burning themselves out in service to other people. Like who's looking after them? And, you know, I had this really strong feeling about that. So I re I started to write, first of all, I started to write about holding space for yourself. Like people look at this, like you can't just be doing this for everybody else. Is Are you doing this for yourself? And then are people doing this for you? Because I noticed that so many of the people who were naturally gravitating towards this work were self-sacrificing people. And, and not just because okay. they, you know, that wasn't just, I don't put the burden on these people. I put it on society, on our culture, on our systems, because many of us, in particular, those of us who've been socialized in our cultures as women, we have taken on this burden. We've been, this is some of this has been imposed on us, this belief system that we should look after everybody, that we should be sacrificing everything for our children, for our partners, for our communities. And it becomes, and this is something I really had to work through with myself, especially leaving my own marriage is I wasn't able to name at that time how much my looking after other people was really a form of codependency where I was you know, too attached to their needs. I was too attached to looking after them and was getting some of my identity from looking after them. And, and so I had to really pull back and recognize, oh, wait a second. I'm actually in better service to people when I manage my own resources, where I don't burn myself out, where I, you know, I really care for like, if I'm going to be a bowl for other people, I've got to look after that bowl. Like I've got to be well resourced. And that means going to find other people and trusting other people to hold space for me, or I'm getting burnt out and getting crushed by the load of all that, that I'm trying to hold. And so this is some of the most important work in my training is recognizing your limits, naming your limits. I'm, I spoke at a conference once in Florida for people who were working in trauma and grief, particularly with youth. And these people, I, I, I said the words, sometimes you have to say, I'm at capacity. And there was something about those words, just those three simple words, I'm at capacity. In fact, in other words, I've reached the limits of what I can do. 
there was something about those words that just caught on and became the buzzword for the whole conference. Everybody came up to me and said, if there's nothing I remember from your talk, it'll be to say I'm at capacity when people, when I'm realizing that I'm reaching, I'm doing too much. And so I think those are really important words to learn to say and to tell other people like, this is it. This is the limit of what I can do. I'm sorry. I, I love you. And this is the limit. And but that's hard. It's really hard when you love people and you think, oh, I can just do a little bit extra for them to step back and say, no, you can find someone else. There are other people available who can support you right now. Yeah, I really love that thought. It reminds me of the the quote from Anne Morrow Lindbergh, where she talks about wishing that she could respond in action to everything that her heart responds to. And I think really conscientious people relate to that. I certainly do. And and it's like, man, my heart is constantly sensing the need to hold space and connect and be the bowl. And for so many people, and like you said, the, the capacity thing, I mean, I, I really relate to that. It's definitely going to be a takeaway for me as well. And so with that, then people, I mean, essentially the message is, is that you don't, just because your heart's responding, just because you maybe even could be a bull for someone doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be and even should be and that you can step back a few layers and trust that someone else will be able to provide that and that you can still hold space for them from a distance. And that's still an act of compassion, an act of service and love for them. Yeah. One of the tricky things about this is that far too often we actually hold space to fill our own needs instead of the other person's needs. And this is a trap that we, all of us who are helpers get into is, and I, t I tell people that I'm, I'm training or I'm working with is like, pause for a moment and check in with yourself is, are you showing up for that person? Because you need to be a person who shows up and you need to identify yourself as a caring, <laughs> loving person. Or are you genuinely showing up for that person because you believe that you're showing up is in that person's best interest? And, you know, <laughs> if we're really honest with ourselves, and it's, that's not a problem. Like I'm not a person who says, get rid of all of your ego entirely. We all have egos and it's an important part of what keeps us functioning in the world. But we do, we're often not honest enough with ourselves about what we're getting out of this because we are getting something. It's feeding us. It's feeding our self identity. It's feeding our value as a person. We believe that we are more valuable when we're looking after other people. But sometimes we do that at the detriment of those other people. And like, for example, I said yesterday, my daughter wanted the backyard mm. to be with a friend. If I had forced myself into that situation and said, well, I, no, I'll, I'll, I'll hang out with you. Like, you. You can talk to me. Well, that wouldn't have genuinely been in my daughter's <laughs> best interest. That would have been in my best interest because I want to be the kind of mother who can hold space for her. So, you know, that's where I have to pull myself back and say, wait, no, that was about me. <laughs> that's not actually about her. Yeah, that's, I love that. And it's very layered. If we really want to do this well and make it a part of how, how we show up, we have to be willing to come inside that polarized space between doing it and being it all and not doing it and not doing any of it. That there's room for us to show up as we can, as there are other needs and room for us to even not show up when there are needs. That's a very nuanced space. 
And even if the other person can't see it or acknowledge it, oh, right? Yeah. That's a big part of it for me. I know is when sometimes I'll stay in it because now I'm like, oh, well, I need them to see me as someone who cares, even though they can't see it. But my intention, you can get really wrapped up in that. And so it takes a lot of internal discipline for me and a lot of courage and trust that they will either see it or if they never see it, that it's still okay. Yeah, you're speaking to something really huge. And I, I did a lot of personal work around this because I started to realize just how much of what I was putting into the world was still a childhood longing to be witnessed, to be fully witnessed in the world as being a, you know, a good and helpful person. And I did a little, I don't know if you know the book, Discovering Your Inner Mother by Bethany Webster. And she talks about learning to mother yourself. And be what you didn't receive from your mother, whatever your mother was unable to give you. And I did some work around that. And I also did some work around internal family systems with Richard Schwartz and identifying, you know, the, the little child parts in me that were, were really longing to be mm-hmm. valuable and, and to be seen and, and loved. And, and right. then I, you know, I ended up in a, in a marriage where I was always trying to be the, as I said, I had some codependent tendencies where I was overlooking after my former husband had some serious mental health issues where I was trying to be his savior. I was trying to look after him and fix him as result, you know, fix things for him. And all so much of that was rooted in some really deep needs to be seen and witnessed and of value and, and to have a purpose. And so, yeah, sometimes we have to really, that's why when I teach my programs around holding space, often the hardest work, well, I would say almost always the hardest work people get to is the second module on holding space for yourself. Cause then you have to look at your own inner stuff. Like what's getting in your way when you're holding space for other people? What are some your, some of your own inner wounds that are actually are changing how you show up for other people? Because you're trying to get your needs met here. And it's, it's a very human thing. And. Sometimes it takes a really long time to unpack it. Yeah. Yeah. I can like feel the, that sense of a a lot of work to be done in terms of the relationships like parenting and in a spousal relationship. That's where we have to figure all that out and probably make a lot of mistakes along the way as we do that. So maybe you could talk about how to get started in being able to hold successful space for somebody that we love? Well, as I said just now, one of the most important things I teach people is first hold space for yourself. Learn to really be for yourself what you want to be for other people. And that means learning to honor yourself, learning to honor your own psychic membrane so that you don't have blurry boundaries learning to, I've developed one of the practices I've developed is a practice of tenderness. I've written a, a, a little free ebook, which people can access on my website if they sign up for my newsletter called The House That Tenderness Built, where I, I practice talking to myself as if tenderness were kind of an external person that's treating me with the tenderness that I need that I'm not able to offer myself. And And so I wrote some pieces on that and just learning to be really tender with yourself and learning to treat yourself as, as whole and valuable and, you know, with worth and purpose and not 
being self-critical and not judgmental because what we're often doing when we can't hold space for somebody else, when we're trying to fix them, when we're judging them, when we're hijacking, there's and one of what I talk about as the opposite of holding space is hijacking space. When we hijack their space, it's all about our own internal wounds. It's about our own unmet needs. And so first we have to work on that stuff so that we don't project that onto our relationships, onto other people. So that's really, I think, the most critical piece that we we all need to keep working on. And it's a lifelong process. It's not an overnight. It's not taking one course. It's working on this repeatedly when things come up. And it really is about staying in relationships so you can do that work because it's probably not going to get activated, you know, if you're just off in the woods by yourself. Like you have to be... <laughs> In the trenches, right? With mm -hmm. with your loved ones, with the people that you're caring about that you need something from and they need you. And it's like all these attachment relationships are really going to activate this whole process. And so don't think that you've got to kind of push pause on life and go get it figured <laughs> out. It's happening yeah. in yeah. in context. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I love that, that you can, that's such a safe place to start. And I mm -hmm. wouldn't have guessed that. Mm -hmm. So I, I yeah. love that taking on some of these things that become a, sa a practice in self-compassion, then we just learn what making space is like and feels like and, and how to enjoy it and, and then how to offer it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I, I appreciate what you say, Jeff, because I, what I always say to people is like, if you want to learn to hold space, start by holding space imperfectly. You're not going to like, you're, you're not going to show up and be exactly what a person needs. You're going to start by fumbling a little bit. You're going to start by noticing it. Oh, shoot. I gave advice when that person didn't ask for advice. Okay. So now I can self correct and I can, I can make repairs that might be needed. I can offer them. I can say, you know, I recognize I, I gave you that advice that was about me. It wasn't about you. So I, I I'm going to withdraw that and you can do with it what you want. That kind of thing, noticing, apologizing, <laughs> not over apologizing, because that's another form of holding or hijacking space, because we want that person to notice how apologetic <laughs> yeah. we are. So, but uh, just honoring, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to fumble a little bit here. That is how we learn. It's through this practice yeah. of making mistakes and forgiving ourselves for those mistakes and letting other people hold space for us and witnessing what feels really good. Like when you come home from a hard day at work, what is it that you need? Like naming your needs. I, I really work with people to learn to articulate their own needs because if we learn to recognize how to get our needs met, then we can learn to also recognize, oh, that person has slightly different needs than me. But because I'm honest about my needs, I can hear them in their honesty about their needs and I can honor them in their own membrane instead of trying to project my stuff onto them, my own unmet needs. So some of it is just about learning that practice of how do I name my needs here and how do I articulate them? Wow, Heather, this is really adult stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we have to grow up or something. It's amazing. <laughs> We're all still oh working on them. It's a Did work, you want to ask more about that? Progress. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, Heather, I want to see if we can switch over to this context that so much of our audience is working through some kind of relationship injury, betrayal, usually in a marriage, sexual betrayal, stuff that's really loaded, really sensitive, really reactive. And, you know, oftentimes it's never just one person that's hurting, right? You've got 
wounds on both sides. And even though there's maybe like a, a big kind of dumpster fire crisis that's going on right now with, you know, an affair or a secret sexual life or some kind of an addiction of some kind, that obviously has to be addressed and there has to be triage. And so there's, there's a need to pay attention to that. But a lot of, in my experience and working with these couples over the years, a lot of the times, neither person feels like they can hold space for the other person or they feel like they shouldn't have to because they're hurt so bad. Or as they get into longer term recovery, they feel like it feels terrifying to open that back up and give that person some space because maybe they won't feel bad about what they've done or, you know, it could just bring up so much pain. I would just love for you to speak to that dynamic with couples that are working through betrayal, both for the person who's been betrayed and then also the person who's also done the betraying. Yeah, that's such an important question because one of the things that holding space is really built on is trust. And when I talk about, so in my, mm. in my book, I talk about the three layers of the bowl. The inner bowl is what you're offering a person. And then the middle layer is the what's going on in you, the intuitive stuff, the the guidance that's helping you hold space. And then the outer bowl is, uh, is what's holding space for you. And as I developed this kind of model, I was thinking, well, where does trust go in all this? And I recognized was trust was kind of the glue between each of the layers. Like trust is part of the whole container and you can't have any part of the holding space if you don't have trust. And trust can okay. be really a depending on the relationship, depending on, on what's present. It can happen in an instant. Like I said, the woman on the street, I didn't know her. I'd stepped, uh, stepped off the bus. She established trust really quickly by simply witnessing me and honoring my pain. And I could trust her. I'd let her hug me, you know, a stranger on the street. But in a relationship where you've had years and years and years of building trust, and then that trust is broken, it's like your bowl has been shattered. Like, how do I now hold space for you when you have, when what's happened in this relationship has shattered my trust? And so it, it can take a lot of years to rebuild that, to be back to a place where I can now hold that because I'm in pain. And, you know, and, and so I, I don't know how to show up. I don't like, I'm so reactive. It's like my bowl is now made of you know, like the blue or the um, bubbles, if you blow bubbles, like how fragile they are. It's like I now have a container made out of like soapy water <laughs> and you just do one small thing. It's going to shatter my whole bowl. I can't hold it for you. And so it takes that rebuilding to some degree before you can now hold space. And I think that's where community comes in. I think that's where we have to rely on who else can hold space for for us, who can be my outer rim of my bowl so that I can build some of that trust. Like if I, if I have a best friend who I can be in a trusting relationship with, that allows me to grow trust in myself so that I can trust, you know, I, I can offer something to the other person I might be trying to work this through with. Who are my therapists, my counselors, those people, the container, my church, my, my community? Who's, who's going to hold a strong outer container? Mm -hmm so that some of that glue can be rebuilt into the kink container of our relationship. And I mean, I don't think I, <laughs> I have any real answers to a question like that, but I think it is, it's working on, do I trust myself? Like, have I forgiven whatever happened? Cause there's that, like I, I've been in a mar marriage breakdown myself and I know that 
one of the things that felt shattered was a trust in myself. Like, was I putting my trust in the wrong person? If that's the case, like, how do I now trust myself? Because maybe I was all these years, I've been Mm -hmm. blind to this. So I think rebuilding some of that internal Mm -hmm. trust has to has to be part of that process as well to get to a place where you can be present in any kind of conversation, whatever, whatever that is. And knowing who the people are that can hold that is really, really important. Because I in when I think about moments when my former husband and I had to be in some kind of conversation because we had children together and things were starting to get a little volatile. It really mattered who else was in the room. Like if there was a calm presence in the room that we could trust that there was some external trust there that allowed us to be more present, you know, for each other. And so, yeah, it, I think, I think it's learning the, the, the yeah. outer container. It's learning your own internal trust again, rebuilding that for yourself um, so that you can, go into those sensitive areas and have those necessary conversations. Yeah, that really aligns with a lot of the work that I've done and what I teach couples is, I mean, I, I, the person who broke the trust, who's responsible for the at least the sort of acute injury that maybe brings them into treatment or gets them to start looking at this, I talk a lot about creating conditions and how really that's outer container kind of stuff, which is they can be the glue that just at least holds space for the injured partner and just stabilize themselves, whatever they have to do to sort of stay put and maintain that presence and the conditions of regulating their emotions and getting support and being honest and telling the truth and just trying to slow things down and make conditions safe enough to start even the healing process. And then for the betrayed partner to then start working on understanding their own voice and their own needs and starting to advocate and get safety and and clarity around those things. And that combination is really the starting point. So I, I love that you articulated that. I think you answered it beautifully. And especially the, the overarching truth that all this inner, outer layer bull stuff gets shattered when there's a big trust mm-hmm. breach like that. And you have to really honor the fact that there's pieces now. And it's not like, hey, even though I really hurt you, you still need to care about my feelings right now. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, or feeling like what's wrong with me that I can't care about this other person's feelings right now. I mean, that, that it's like there's been a huge breach, a huge uh, breaking. So mm-hmm. thank you. I think that's a really beautiful answer. Mm-hmm. The other piece that that I think people need to learn more and more about, and I think it's more and more in the conversation these days, which I think is a really great thing, is really understanding our nervous systems and what activates our nervous systems. And when we can't be, we just simply cannot respond in a healthy way when we're being activated. And so how do I learn to soothe, what are they, how can I self-regulate? How can I co-regulate with another person who's holding space for me? And I, I do bring in that language for holding space is often what it is when we're showing up for another person. It's just helping them co-regulate so they can be present to make good decisions. And so if I'm there, you know, as your ally holding a hand behind your mm-hmm. back somehow metaphorically, that's giving me, that's allowing my body to settle enough that I can be present in a conversation. So I think those, we can't underestimate how much that is present in those situations when we're having to navigate really tricky conversations and our nervous system is going into fight, flight, freeze and trying to get us out of the room. It's like, I can't have an open, honest conversation with you when I'm fully activated and 
yeah, learning practices that will help us settle is really a critical piece of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well yeah. said. Yeah, again, growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yep, absolutely. Well, this is this is wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, do you have any other questions for her? I mean, I I feel like I could talk to you all afternoon here, but yeah, I need to let um, you get- no, this has been wonderful. I think it's a really great foundation for the concept and and how to incorporate more, how to create more of you know personal awareness around it. So maybe you could tell us where our listeners can find you and your work. Sure. So I can be found heatherplatt.com is my personal blog and a website. However, I've co-founded the Center for Holding Space. So centerforholdingspace.com is where the large portion of my body of work can be found. My book is there. There's training programs. We're launch, we're relaunching the next session of the foundation program. So if you go into our certification path to certification and you go to foundation program, that's the, the training we do in kind of the basics of holding space. I'm on social media as Heather Platt in most places. Yeah. So we'd, we'd love to have your people come and check us out. Galen, who you mentioned is a really strong supporter of this work. She's been present in a lot of our trainings and we really value her, her as a community member. We're really growing an international community of people that are learning to hold space. And it's really quite beautiful. We have people from six continents that are part of our community of taking our training program. So it's a great place to interact with other people who are learning this language as well. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's great. We'll definitely link those resources in the show notes. And I'll tell you, I mean, if you spend more than five minutes on social media, you know that our world needs a lot of holding space right now. And if you listen to the news or just watch what's going on, we just have to have a little more room to make space for each other and stop being so reactive. Yeah. Yes. Amen to that. (laughs) Well, thank you, Heather, for the incredible work that you're doing and Mm -hmm. just being with you here, even though we have a little bit of a vocal delay, I almost feel like it's perfect because... It feels like it really matches the the spirit yeah. of your work. And it just makes me want to slow down and not interrupt other people so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's really been a pleasure being in conversation with you today. And, and I agree. Sometimes we need technology to tell us to slow our conversations down so we don't miss each other's, <laughs> how each other is showing up. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much Thank for your time. You. Once again, we want to thank Heather for joining us on the podcast today and just really appreciate the insights and the wisdom that she shares with all of us. You can learn more about Heather and the great work that she's doing on her website, heatherplett.com. We've got it linked in the show notes, so it'll be easy to find. And I also want to remind you, if you want to download a free series of videos on rebuilding trust, click on the link in the show notes. I'll send it to you right away. It's called the first steps to rebuilding trust. And it will help you be able to learn the foundational steps, whether you're the person who's been betrayed or the person who's broken trust. Thanks for joining us this week. We look forward to joining with you next week on this podcast. Mm